what's going on, everybody? My name's Athena, and you're here for a bonus episode of Vanished in the Valley, produced by Captain Kirk. Today, we're going to do something a little different because it's a bonus episode. I decided to mix it up a bit. I'm actually going to tell you a story of a horrific kidnapping and murder. And I know I usually don't tell murder stories on my podcast because there's billions of other fucking woke chicks telling stories of murder and uh, all that kind of shit. And I'm sure they do a much better job than I do. But I just, I came upon this uh, story I'm about to tell you. I've heard about it a few years ago, but I've actually found this article in WordPress And it's actually a Japanese person that wrote it. And I just figured coming from somebody that lived in Japan and knows the custom, knows the culture, they would probably be the best ones to tell this story. So a lot of the information I'm getting today is actually from the WordPress article. If you go to umig.wordpress.com, you can actually find the article. And I got some of the other information from Wikipedia. So I'm just going to warn you guys now, you definitely need to bring your big boy or big girl panties for this story because it's super fucked up. It includes rape, torture, being held in captivity for 44 days, and of course, murder. So go get dressed, put those big boy, big girl panties on, and we'll get started. So I'm about to tell you this story of Junko Furuta. She was born January 18th, 1971, in Misato, Satyama, Japan. Now, she was just, you know, an average girl, and she actually attended a high school called Yashio Minami and worked a part-time job after school. She lived with her parents, an older brother, and she also had a younger brother. Prior to her abduction, she had accepted a job as an electronics retailer, And she actually planned working there after graduation. Everyone described her as a happy-go-lucky kind of girl. She wasn't known to dabble in drugs. And some people kind of looked down on her for this for some reason. And I guess being an independent, strong-minded person, she didn't feel the peer pressure to do drugs. So so she was pretty straight-laced. All through high school, she worked a part-time job at a plastic molding factory that was to save up for a graduation trip. She also had a job set up for after graduating high school that she could work at part-time while she attended college. So it sounds like she had her shit together, guys. She had everything mapped out. She knew what she wanted to do. She had a plan and she was sticking to it. And all of this leads up crossing paths with Miyano Hiroshi. Now, Junko and Miyano had actually gone to high school together. He had asked her out on a date before, and she politely turned him down. And a lot of people think that is what caused Miyano to target her. Now, let me just give you a little background on Miyano. He's actually going to be the leader of this little group that kidnaps Junku. He was born in April 1970, and he was the first son of his parents. And that's kind of a big deal in Japanese culture. Both of his parents were working, and the family was kind of well off, but considered dysfunctional due to the parents not getting along and all, you know, fighting all the time. 
So Miana starts showing sort of like an aggressive personality, and that came out in primary school. He started by stealing, bullying other kids, and vandalizing property. He actually became violent within this family, and his father went to school for advice. In middle school, he passed the three years without getting arrested or causing much trouble. He became pretty good at judo and devoted himself to it and got good marks in it. He moved on to high school, which he was famous for being good at judo. The practice was hard, and he was bullied by seniors there. As a result, a year later, he left school. He started to work to become a tiler, but around that time, joined a motorcycle gang. He's also kind of connected with having Yakuza connections. He decides to leave the motorcycle gang for a year or so, and he kind of settled down. He worked hard as a tiler, and his bosses said, you know, he did a good job. They praised his work. He started living with his girlfriend and decided he wanted to marry her. So he starts saving money. In May 1988, he got a driver's license, and his daddy bought him a brand new car. Around August, however... He becomes dissatisfied with the low wages and just decides, fuck it, I'm not going to go to work anymore. He had gotten to know a member of Yakuza through a former classmate and from the Yakuza starts selling fake brand goods like those fucking fake ass Gucci purses. That's what I can see this fool doing. He was working as a techie looking after a Yakuza office. He also started using drugs. Check this out. He was a paint thinner inhalation addict. What the actual fuck? <laughs> so, let's get back to Junko. The night that Miyanu and Junko meet, let me just tell you this little setup this asshole kind of does. So on the evening of November 25th, 1988, Miyano and his friend Nobuharu Minato were wandering around Misato with the intention of robbing and raping local women. Holy fucking shit. At 8.30pm, they spotted Furuta riding her bike home after she had just finished a shift at her job. Under Miyano's orders, Minato kicked Furuto off her bike and fled the scene. Miyano, under the pretense of witnessing the attack by coincidence, approached Furuta and offered to walk her home safely. He said to Furuto, That one's crazy. I've been threatened by him with a knife before a short time ago. You may still be in danger. Let me walk you home. Totally trying to be like the white knight saving the day. Of course, Ferrado's going to be fucking, like, so scared. Like, this guy just came up and attacked her for no fucking reason. So, of course, she's going to accept his offer. But she's totally unaware that Miyano was leading her to a nearby warehouse. And once he got her there, he actually revealed his Yakuza connections. He actually told Ferrado, I'm his mate and we're both Yakuza. If you obey me, I'll spare your life. Let me have sex with you. If you scream, you're dead. He raped her right then and there in the warehouse and then brought her to a nearby hotel and raped her again. He also threatened to kill her. From the hotel, Miyano called Minadu and his other friends, Joe Agura and Yasushi Watanabe, and bragged to them about the rape. Ogura reportedly asked Miyano to keep her in captivity in order to allow numerous people to sexually assault her. 
The group had a history of gang rape, and they recently kidnapped and raped another girl, who they released afterwards. So around 12.30 a.m. on the 26th of November, Miano meets up with his three other punk-ass bitch friends in a park, and he had brought Junko. After a talk with his friends, they decided to abduct and imprison her. They told her that they knew where she lived from her student notebook and that they were going to get Yakuza to kill all of her family if she tried to escape. She was then taken to Yasushi's house, which is in the Aiyu's district of Adachi, Tokyo, where she was easily overpowered and repeatedly gang-raped. Oh my god, I can't even fucking imagine. Alright, let's go on. So, on the 27th of November, Junko's worried parents asked the police to help search for her. However, the gang forced Junko to call her home three times between the end of November and the middle of December. She was made to tell her parents that she had run away from home, was safe with friends, and that she wanted the police to stop the search. So at the beginning of December, when the gangs were asleep, Junko rang the police but was stopped before she could say anything. The police immediately phoned back but was told it was just a mistake. Angered by her act, the four punks started to torture her. She was repeatedly punched, kicked, struck by heavy objects, foreign objects were inserted into her private parts, skin was burned with cigarette lighters. They also had stopped feeding her. Due to both her external and internal injuries and malnutrition, she could hardly walk, you guys. She actually had to crawl downstairs to go to the bathroom. When she could no longer crawl, she was made to urinate into a cup and was then forced to drink her own urine. Because of the unbearable violence and pain, Junko repeatedly begged for them to kill her. Ignoring her pleas, they continued to torture her for days. So check this part out. At this point in the captivity, she was at Minato's parents' house. And whenever the parents were present, Furuta was forced to act as his girlfriend. They dropped this pretense when it became clear that Minato's parents would not report them to the police. The Minato stated that they did not intervene because they were aware of Miyano's Yakuza connections and feared retaliation, and because their own son was increasingly violent towards them. Minato's brother was also aware of the situation, but did nothing to prevent it. The group held Furuta captive in the Minato residence for 40 days, abusing, raping, starving, and torturing her. They also invited other Yakuza friends to torment and rape her, possibly more than 100 men. According to their trial statements, the four of them raped her over 400 times, you guys. They beat her. They hung her from the ceiling. They used her as a quote-unquote punching bag. They dropped barbells onto her stomach, forced her to eat live cockroaches, drink her own urine, forced her to masturbate in front of them, and forced her to dance and sing to songs while being beaten. They inserted many objects into her vagina, rectum, and anus, including a lit bulb and fireworks. They burned her vagina and clitoris with cigarettes and lighters, and her eyelids with hot wax. 
They also tore her left nipple off with pliers and pierced her breasts with sewing needles. Furuta was said to slip into unconsciousness because of the repeated assaults, leading them to dunk her head into a bucket of water each time to continue the torture. So it's like they're fucking getting off on this girl's pain. They want her awake and aware so they can get the most enjoyment from this torture. When her body was found, Oronaman sea bottles had been inserted into her anus. Her face was unrecognizable and she had become pregnant from the repeated rapes. Yeah, I'm just like, how the fuck does this even happen? What kind of a demon does a person have to have inside of them to allow them to do this type of torture to another person? And how do four fucked up people like this just happen to find each other to do something like this to another person? It's just fucking mind-blowing. And the parents, oh my god, don't even get me started on those pieces of shit. The brutality of the attacks actually changed Junko's appearance completely. Her badly beaten face was so swollen that her cheeks were as high as her nose. Her burned and infected skin produced bodily fluid with a bad smell. Infection. <laughs> the gang no longer had sexual interest in her. To fulfill their sexual desires, around 2.30 a.m. on the 27th of December, 1988, the four punk-ass bitches abducted a 19-year-old woman on her way home. They pushed her into Miyato's car, threatened her with a knife, took her to a motel room, and gang-raped her. Even before abducting Junko, the four punk-ass bitches had committed a similar gang-rape on the 8th of November. When January 1989 arrived, the gang talked about what to do with Junko. Should they kill and bury her? Should they mince her body up after killing her? We can burn her in an oil drum, maybe fill the drum with concrete and throw it into the sea. The police would never find it. In the early hours of the 4th of January, 1989, after losing a lot of money playing Mahong, heavily frustrated, Miyaho visited one of the other gang members' house, and his other two friends were present, so all four of these little punk-ass bitches are together here. After playing a computer game for a while, Miyato decided to vent his anger by beating Junko where she lay, barely alive. The attack started around 8 a.m. Junko was punched, kicked, had her face covered in hot wax with two short candles placed on her eyelids. She barely even responded. They made her stand and struck her face with swinging kicks. Defenseless Junko fell into the stereo and collapsed. She started to go into convulsions. Now, these four punk-ass bitches knew Junko might die, but that didn't stop them. She bled from her nose and mouth. Pus emerged from her burns. Blood splattered all over the room. Reluctant to get blood on their hands, all four gang members covered their hands with plastic bags and taped them around their wrists before punching Junko in the stomach and shoulders 20 to 30 times. They would take turns to punch and kick her in the face, stomach, and thighs. They also struck Junko in the thighs many times with a heavy iron ball, which was part of one of the gang members' kickboxing exercise machines. They also dropped this iron ball onto her stomach several times. 
Miyato repeatedly poured lighter fuel onto her thighs and set it alight. Junko initially gestured as if to put it out, but gradually became unresponsive. The gang taped around Junko's ankles so that she could not escape and decided to go out to the sauna. It's believed that she died in the room right then, sometime during this last torture. The next day, when they all got together at a florist run by Yakuza, one of their brothers rang to tell them that Junko appeared to be dead. Afraid of the murder being detected, the gang members decided to get rid of Junko's body. They wrapped her in two blankets, pushed it into a large travel bag, and put tape around it. They borrowed some mint and a cement mixer, and all the whole truck, the whole setup, and took him home. They fetched an oil drum, which was used as a litter bin in the neighborhood. They placed the travel bag, which contained Junko's body, in this drum, threw in some concrete blocks, filled the drum up with fresh concrete. The drum was then taped into a larger black littered bag. Around 8 p.m., the drum was loaded onto the truck. They planned to drop it into the sea, but on the way passed an empty space near a development site and just decided, huh, that's good enough, we'll abandon it there. On the 23rd of January, 1989, two of the gang members were arrested for the gang rape of a 19-year-old woman back in December. On the 29th of March, two police officers came to interrogate them. A woman's underwear had been found at their address, and the police suspected they might have committed theft as well. There had been a murder of a mother and her seven-year-old son in the same district on the 16th of November the previous year. That was nine days before Junko's abduction. The case had not been solved, so the one officer decided to interrogate them about it. During the interrogation, one of the officers said, you mustn't kill someone, you know. And Miyato thought the officer meant the murder of Junko Furuta, thinking that, I guess, one of the other gang members in the other room had already confessed. Bucket Miyato says, I'm sorry that we killed. The officers were actually astounded as it was just a trick. They went to the empty space accordingly to the confession, where they found the drum with a strange smell. The 615-pound drum was lifted onto a truck by a crane and taken to the police station the next day. There they found Junko's body inside, badly decomposed, as she's been dead for over two months at this point. Edema all over her body, malnutrition, facial features that were unrecognizable, due to severe disfigurement. Her body had to be identified by fingerprints. On the 1st of April, the other gang members were arrested for a completely different sexual assault, and then they were re-arrested for the murder of Junko Furuta. Junko Furuta's funeral was held on April 2nd, 1989. Had she not been murdered, the following day, Monday the 3rd, would have been her first day at work. I can't imagine the fucking terror and pain this woman went through for 44 days by these pieces of shit. I, I there's just like no words for it. And I guarantee you there's other people that have gone through shit like this. There's other sick people in the world probably doing some fucked up shit like this right now. Despite the shockingly brutal nature of the crime, 
The courts would not allow the identities of the four punk-ass bitch gang members to be released to the public. However, <laughs> some media actually did publish their names. On July 12, 1991, after overturning the original terms, the Tokyo High Court sentenced these little punks as followed. Hiroshi Miyano got a 20-year sentence. His mother actually sent the sum of 50 million yen, which is 425,000 U.S. dollars, to Junko's parents after selling their family home. And check this out. Miyano was actually released in the summer of 2009. In January 2013, he was arrested for fraud, but remained silent during the interrogation. Due to insufficient evidence, he was released without charge. So the second little punk-ass bitch, Joe Kamisaku, he got a 10-year term. In court, it was revealed that Kamisaku father started saving money for compensation to Junko's parents, despite Junko's parents' refusal to accept it. Kamisaku was released in August of 1999. He married and divorced a Chinese woman, became close to Yakuza again, in May 2004, when he was 31 years old, was arrested for the attack, abduction, and imprisonment of a man. During the attack, he boasted that he'd already committed murder and he knew how to coax the police and even the prosecutor. He was given a four-year sentence for that. A few sources of information report that his mother vandalized Junko's grave, quote-unquote, because she ruined her son's life. It's like, are you fucking serious? You're the problem. You're probably why your son's a fucking psychopath. A source of information in more recent years states that his father's savings, originally meant for Junko's parents, had actually been consumed by luxuries. Wow. So, the next punk-ass bitch, Minyato, was sentenced five to nine-year term. He married a Romanian woman in 2006. The last little punk-ass bitch, Yasushi Watanabe, was sentenced to five to seven-year term, and now he seems to be living with his mother after his release. He has not actually had a job since then. Ah, wow, you guys. I'm just, like, fucking... None of the parents that saw this girl being tortured, saw their sons raping and just disfiguring this girl, none of these people were ever charged or held accountable. The house in which Junko was forced to spend the 40 days of her life when she was tortured was demolished after the murder. It's been replaced by a new house and it's owned by a totally different family. Before the brutal torture to Junko, it seems that she once had a meal with one of her captor's families downstairs. The captor's mother told her to return home, only to be shouted out by her son and hit. The parents were not allowed to go upstairs, let alone look into the son's room. It makes you wonder, how how is it that these fucking kids were so out of control that their parents were terrified of them? A lot of people wonder why Junko did not try harder to escape, and... I guess a lot of people think this. This has come up time after time. But if you think about it, she didn't know what was going to happen to her in the end. She had no idea what fate awaited her. She also had the threat of these assholes attacking her family. At the beginning of this ordeal, they told her that they knew where her family lived. 
and she did not want them to be hurt. In court documents, it stated that all four gang members showed deep remorse and pledged to become better members of society in the future. But that's obviously a bunch of bullshit. How the fuck are you going to be a better person when you're capable of that? I don't believe it. Fuck no. The judge at the trial asserted that there was no words that could fully describe Junko's pain and suffering. Hearing the details of the brutal violence and torture set upon Junko, a spectator in the gallery actually fainted. So at the time of Junko's death, these little punk-ass bitches, two of them were 17, one was 16, and one was 18. But they were regarded as minors, so they were automatically protected by special provisions which only applied to 18 and under. So they fucking lucked out on that one. The public decided, kind of collectively, that the terms they received were way too light, and they were disgusted and angered. When a 14-year-old boy committed the Kobe child murders in 1997, the public again was furious as the perpetrator seemed to be well protected and supported for his future, while the victim's families were not. Oh wow, it seems like Japan has a problem like the American justice system, where the people that are being victimized barely have any rights, and the criminals seem to get all the rights. So the survivor in that 1992 attack was a 15-year-old girl. She was repeatedly raped. The perpetrator later scoffed that he would not get capital punishment, because even in Junko's murder case, they had not. This 19-year-old was actually sentenced to death and is currently awaiting the execution. Junko would have been 49 years old this year. And it just makes you kind of wonder, like, what her life would have been like. Would she have gotten married and had a family? Would she have finished college and started a career? So many possibilities were cut short because these sick, disgusting, punk-ass bitches happened to cross paths with Junko that night. And if it hadn't have been Junko, it definitely would have been another woman. You can just look at their past history of assaulting people, mostly women, and raping them, that they were psychopaths. I just wish there was a way that we could, uh, <laughs> is there a way we can just find these psychopaths and take them out before this shit even happens? What's that fucked up movie with Tom Cruise? Uh, <laughs> I have no idea, but there's a movie with Tom Cruise and they can predict assholes that are going to commit crime and take them off the streets before it actually happens. We're not there yet, but you know, this shit happens all over the world. There's just something in human nature that, you know, some people get their wires crossed and they are psycho or sociopaths and hurt other people. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. It's always like a catch-up game. We can't ever prevent it. So, but that's the story of Junko Furuta and the horrible torture she endured before being murdered at the hands of these four little punk-ass bitches. That is about it for our bonus episode, which was produced by Captain K -K 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 Kirk. Thank you very much, girl. I appreciate it. Come back on Thursday for our regular episode. And that's about it. And as I always tell you, be aware and don't forget your pepper spray. Ciao, ciao. Hey, everyone. If you are wondering how to become a producer of Vanished in the Valley, you can show some love through Cash App at Vanished Athena. Or if you go to the description on each episode, you will find a little link that says support Acast Vanished in the Valley. 
support us like that if you want, and I will give you some producer credits. So that's what's up. Thank you guys. I appreciate it.